This is part 18 of The Horse and the Rider. It's one story that begins at part one, so if you haven't heard that, go back. and the Rider, part 18, The Cliff. Jackie was under Leanne's house. She got there by being dragged by her feet, drowsy and disoriented. She was propped up against a column at one end of the space where she curled up into a defensive ball and her wrists and ankles and knees were tied together with metres and metres of electrical tape. She tried not to throw up at the yellow light of the headlamp darting around the rafters and gyp rock overhead. She was pushed into an alcove. When the light went out, it was a mercy. What's that? Jackie had asked when they were on the road heading out of town, when they just left Peter to his game. There was a bag at the side of the road and a dark shape further down in the ditch. In the corner of the bag, the dusty gold of a wad of $50 notes was just visible. They pulled over. That's a lot of money, Jackie observed, turning the wads over in her hands. Yeah, Leanne agreed. She started the car again. Jackie held the cold, wet bag with $300,000 in it next to the bag with $200,000 she'd taken from the youth on the train. Half a million dollars, although she hadn't counted it yet. When they arrived at Leanne's house, Leanne apologised for the groceries she hadn't bought. I should have told you, she admitted sheepishly. The supermarket's been closed for weeks. I've been living off the garden and the food in the freezer. I just didn't expect you so soon. Jackie took her face in her hands and kissed her. They kissed for a minute. All right, you, Leanne said. She lit a dim gas lamp and placed it on the sideboard. Jackie showered and Leanne cooked sausages and peas from the freezer and gravy from the cupboard. The plate sat on her heavy wooden dinner table when Jackie re-emerged. She was wearing pyjamas. I hope you don't mind, Jackie said. Leanne winked at her. They ate their dinner. It's a lot of money, Leanne said. She'd looked at it while Jackie was in the shower. Just clumps of bills. Enough clumps to pay the Italians. The fact that it was enough was somehow not surprising. Yeah, Jackie agreed. She stared down at her plate. Suddenly the money was hard to think about and she didn't know why. The escape had been fine. The terrifying man on the train chasing them down with a knife and savage force. The jump from the moving carriage. Those parts were too strange and Jackie was the type of person who didn't bother to think about anything too strange. But the memory of her adventure with Peter was a statement, while the two bags containing unimaginable amounts of cash were a question, and Jackie felt instantly too tired for that question. The limitless potential the money represented a few hours ago was a test now. She felt suddenly terrified. 
Leanne reached out and touched her elbow. It's not just that, Jackie blurted. There's more. She pointed at the bags. Leanne nodded. Hey, she said. That's not bad. It's great. We can do anything with this. She went to the kitchen and poured two small glasses of bourbon. She got a cutting board from a cupboard and a heavy knife from the block and quietly darted around the corner to the bathroom. She quickly and quietly counted out eight small round sleeping tablets and placed them on the cutting board and crushed them with the flat of the knife blade, then swept the powder into one of the glasses. She stirred it in. She used a plastic spoon so it didn't clink against the glass. At the table, she handed Jackie the glass with the crushed tablets and said, Bottoms up. She drained her glass in one mouthful. Jackie did the same and shuddered. She looked with alarm at Leanne, who raised her eyebrows and smiled wryly. Did I say it was good bourbon? Jackie gulped it down. Leanne stood behind her and kissed her neck. They stumbled into the bedroom. An hour later, Leanne emerged, staggering with Jackie sprawled out on the rug behind her. She dragged her up the corridor and popped open the tiny wall panel in the laundry that led to the bolt hole she'd fashioned. She was a practical person and had hollowed out the narrow passageway when the crime wave first started up, although she'd never felt the need to use it. She rolled Jackie onto an old towel and dragged it laboriously into the cavity. She felt a little bad as she tied Jackie's hands together. Maybe later she'd understand. It was dangerous outside after dark. It wouldn't be safe for Jackie to be wandering around without protection. Leanne returned from the cavity and placed the money from both bags on the table. She counted the bundles with rising excitement. As she placed the last bundle back on the table, her head was swimming. $500,000. It was a dizzying amount of money, enough to change the course of her life. Leanne didn't have a plan for her new life course, not her style, but this money was a key to a door she'd always wanted to open. If she wanted to buy something, she could buy it. Leanne had never been poor, but her whole life she had craved just a little more luxury. On her table sat the means. But the intoxicating promise of the cash was nonetheless trumped by the prospect of joining a submarine crew to uncover a fabulous mystery and return home a hero with a share of $5 million. With crisp purpose, Leanne stuffed the bundles back into the blue sports bag. She returned to the bedroom for her phone and pecked out a message to the Italians. I have $500,000. I would like to join your crew. In less than a minute, she had a response. One hour and some coordinates. She got in the car and drove. Senior Constable Goosewing hit send on the email to his sergeant, then raced around to his office to watch him open it. He bubbled with barely contained glee. Total vindication. It was all he could think about. He felt righteous, pure, distilled, immensely potent. Goosewing, of course, had at no point been maligned himself. The vindication he overflowed with was on behalf of Peter Quinnell Live. He'd instantly sympathised with the respected voice of news, and it was something far beyond gratifying to know that his sympathy had not been misplaced. The email to his sergeant included a video file from the train station CCTV cameras. 
It showed the old man in conversation with Peter Quinnell live. Then, a turn on his heel, a trip and a fall into the path of the incoming train. It showed beyond doubt that the man had not been pushed and that Peter Quinnell live had not, in fact, been at fault in any meaningful way. He swung obnoxiously around the sergeant's doorframe. Well? He asked. The sergeant looked up from his computer. Hmm, he rumbled at Goosewing. Good news, Peter Quinnell's off the hook. Goosewing looked at him suspiciously. Quinnell live, he said, and I know that. What about an attaboy Goosewing? The sergeant's eyes lingered on his computer screen, at last flickering reluctantly back to Goosewing. We've had a confession, he said. Goosewing frowned. From the, uh... The sergeant made a big show of stopping what he was doing and clicking around to bring up another file on the computer. Judith Senyol, she's the fellow's boss. Uh, she confessed to pushing the Greek in front of the train. It's open and shut, Goosewing. No, no, Goosewing protested. Look at the video I just sent you. It's the CCTV from the train station. Peter Quinnell Live was the suspect, and it proves that he didn't push the old man. Judith Senyol wasn't even there. The sergeant stared blankly at him. He'd been focused on whatever was on his computer screen again. Goosewing felt his irritation rise. What are you looking at there? He snapped. The sergeant was still looking at the screen. At Goosewing's peevish tone, he looked up for a moment, then back at the screen. Uh, it's a screenplay, he said slowly and absently. My nephew wrote it. Uh, it's pretty good. It's a dramedy about a kid with a peanut allergy. Poor damn kid grows up on a peanut farm. Goosewing was pale with outrage. What about my investigation? He whined. You should be reading my report. The sergeant blinked at him. Did I mention the confession? Judith Senyol, the boss, confessed. She's in cuffs now. You already said, Goosewing huffed. Just watch the video. The guy wasn't pushed. I've done the legwork on this. This was my case. The sergeant leaned back in his chair and rubbed his eyes. Sure, Goosewing, he sighed. But we've had a confession. What am I supposed to do? Tell her she didn't do it? Goosewing wound up to squeal. Yes! But the sergeant saw him coming. No, no, no. That's the case, Goosewing. It's over. Murder, third degree. Bad business. Now, Goosewing, frankly, uh, can I be frank? He said, gesturing at the computer. I'm finding you distracting my attention pretty significantly at the moment. I'm trying to focus on this screenplay. I'm up to the third act. He comes back to the farm with a cure. Uh, terrific stuff. It's still dangerous for him, you see, with the peanuts everywhere. But he needs to share the cure. It's really got my attention. I think he could sell it. He fixed his eyes on the screen again. Goosewing stumbled back to his desk and sat with his head in his hands, lost in a fog of fury. He slumped in a chair and fiddled with a paperclip. After a while, he calmed. Who was Judith Senyol to him? Nobody. Who was to say she wasn't somehow responsible for the old Greek man's death after all? There was more to this world than a CCTV camera was capable of capturing. And this was none of his business. Peter Quinnell Live had sung to him a kindred spirit, but the same could not be said of Judith Senyol. He sat up and smoothed his hair back with two hands, then quickly and neatly dumped the file in the waste paper basket next to his desk. Case closed, he observed wryly. He snapped his fingers at one of the other constables. Espresso martinis? He asked, vaulting nimbly over the desk. He made for the lift, only realising as he hit the down button and turned around that no one had followed him. They were reading the sergeant's nephew's screenplay.
The red-headed youth wore shoes with a soft and silent rubber sole. He advanced up the skeletal wooden steps towards the house, a ghost, a shadow. His limbs swayed gelatinously. Peter watched in wonderment. It was like the sound had been turned off. The youth stepped over the threshold, one silent foot following another. Down the long corridor to the living room, dark and empty, doubling back to the bedroom, secure. The ensuite, the other bedroom, the other bathroom. Peter sat in the car and watched the black space of the open doorway in horror. Time and fate hung in the balance. He felt the certainty that this strange and desperate young man with his deadly weapon would soon murder someone overwhelm him. Peter Quinnell Live was not a hero, but the knowledge that, of all the billions of people in the world, he was the only one that could influence the situation towards a different end began to move him. Against the odds, he opened the car door. He stood on trembling legs and walked towards the house. Inside, it was silent. Peter crept down the corridor, ears straining for any sound that would give the red-headed youth's location away. Suddenly, ahead and to the right, there was a rustle and movement as the red-headed youth rounded a corner. Peter fell terrified into an open doorway and landed with a clatter on the bathroom tiles. <laughs> the youth cackled. Now we're being interesting. Peter felt desperately for the corner of the vanity to haul himself up, and his hand found the stock of the knife Leanne had used to crush the tablets. The red-headed youth appeared in the doorway, and suddenly, reflexively almost, Peter lashed his hand out. The knife plunged into the youth's stomach. He stared down at Peter. Are you fucking kidding me? He snarled, swinging the shotgun around to aim at Peter. But Peter's arm, frozen in a stabbing gesture, flailed sideways and clipped the youth's hand just as his thumb found the firing button. The sound in the cavernous bathroom was unbelievable. For a moment, Peter saw black. When his vision cleared, there was a gaping hole in the shower tiles and a seeping puddle of blood tracing the outline of his shoes. Peter clutched his torso in panic, but the blood wasn't his. The red-headed youth had sunk to the floor. He stared at Peter with a wicked grin. He planted both hands on the floor and began to drag himself forward. Run, he whispered. He was down the street and into the bush at the end of the cul-de-sac when the red-headed youth finally fell dead in a puddle of his own blood. As he did in far off Lake Mulwalla, the blob fell silent. The hum was instantly replaced by a shimmering and fizzing. It began to smoke. Columns of silvery grey peeled off its surface and billowed skyward. Inside the shroud of vapour it shone with a dark light. The few campers left on the shore, roused from their sleep by the abrupt end of the wailing, emerged from their tents and watched, mouths agape, as the blob began to rise up out of the water, looking no less majestic than the moon emerging from cloud cover. The old wonder of the blob was renewed. It bubbled and flashed like liquid refracting and absorbing light as the vapour roiled from its surface, then slowly and impossibly lifted out of the water. Higher it rose, 
higher. At 10 metres above the water, it hung like a ghost for just a few seconds and the observers reached for their phones. As they snapped their pictures, it dropped slowly, lazily, then smashing hard into the surface of Lake Mawala. The surface of the water steamed and sprayed. A tsunami peeled out towards the shore. The people on the banks gazed in horror as the water ebbed, then reared up and broke in a fast and impossibly strong tidal wave. It rushed over tents, cars, everything, boiling up towards the highway. The people disappeared under it. Some re-emerged, gasping and clawing, grabbing onto trees and cars, scrambling to higher ground, then choked. They searched frantically around them for something in the leaves or their backpacks that would quell the burning in their lungs and throat, then flopped and collapsed back into listless water, dead. A fog steamed up from the lake, gathering and gathering until a hot westerly pushed it overland. Birds fell out of the sky. Cars veered off the road as the fog seeped through air conditioning vents and poisoned the drivers and residents of Rutherglen, of Chilton, of Wodonga and Albury. The denizens of the tent city set up on the oval in town whooped with delight as the fog drifted over the parklands, causing the floodlights to shoot dramatic rectangular beams down towards them, then tottered in confusion and laid down for the count. In the dark river caves it crept in unseen and snuck out with the souls of the outdoorsmen who'd retreated there. Swift and sure, it crept into town, rolling silently and purposefully up streets and cul-de-sacs, puffing and pulsing as deliberately as though it followed a plan, and in time it found 5 Marlborough Street. But it did not find Peter Quinnell live, who, completely unable to imagine his next destination or consider his own action, had staggered down the stairs and disappeared into the neighbouring bushland. And it did not find Jackie, who, in Leanne's tightly sealed bolt hole cavity, proved too far away and too winding for the fingers of the glowing silver fog. We might as well say that three mornings later, when Leanne had not returned, Jackie was finally able to wriggle to the extent that she could break the electrical tape binding her forearms and free herself from the cavity at 5 Marlborough Street, and stumble, dehydrated and half dead, a kilometre and a half towards town before collapsing. Leanne did not come back. The Italian submariners, having recouped their expenses with a tidy profit, surfaced in now empty Lake Mawala and finding their ticket to riches now expired, simply tossed Leanne overboard and returned home. Leanne splashed feebly towards the faraway lakeshore for some minutes until the water found her lungs and she found the cold blue depths. Jackie was found by a helicopter and taken to a government hospital camp where she was treated for dehydration and shock as all around her, elderly people and little children on fold-out cots were hurriedly intubated and then died in their sleep from the damage to their lungs. The army went door to door and relieved the houses of their corpses. They procured a tract of National Park for the cemetery. Jackie went home to her sleepy coastal suburb to confront her horrors. 
she told the police she hadn't murdered her grandmother, but the sight of Cynthia's corpse had induced an emotional trauma state which had caused her to make some poor decisions. The police bought her story. She became a real estate agent. And before all of that happened, Peter Quinnell Live scrambled through the bush in the cold night, the branches cutting his arms, the spiderwebs panicking him, weeping and swearing, trying to find a soft patch of grass to lay down in. Through the long dark he staggered, and at last a tree loomed in front of him, grey and murky in the dim light. He collapsed into the soft, mossy loam by its roots and fell asleep. Hours later he woke up. The sun beat on his face, red through his eyelids. He opened his eyes, squinting, and propped himself up on one elbow. In his haze of exhaustion and terror, he'd somehow wandered to the bottom of an enormous white cliff. He gazed out to the horizon, but could see no identifiable landmarks. In the distance, a great grey fog hung like a dome over the landscape. He turned his attention to the cliff, which stretched out of sight in either direction and up what must have been several hundred featureless metres. It was nearly pure white. It gleamed with sinister energy. Here and there, Peter observed lines of erosion, contours and ridges in the pale surface. But as his eye landed on them, he was dazzled by the brilliant colour. The details seemed to dissolve as he tried to bring them into focus. As Peter gaped at the cliff face in bewilderment, it moved and became slightly less featureless. There was a strange shimmer and a shift in the surface. An opening appeared and a man shuffled out. He stood on a ledge far off in the distance and very high up. He was wearing a white coat, like the kind a scientist or doctor would wear. He had a very short round body and a round head that sat solidly against his torso. There was no hint of a neck. Even from where he was, Peter could see his thick black brow. As Peter rose weakly to his feet, it caught the scientist's attention. The scientist cupped his hands to his mouth and began to shout. Peter could tell he was shouting from the way his torso stiffened and relaxed, but the distance and the swirling wind made it difficult to hear. Pardon? Peter shouted back. Pardon me? The scientist's shoulders hunched as though he was drawing in a very deep breath and then shouted once more. He shouted. The breeze carried the end of his sentence away with it. He tried again. As he ended his sentence, he staggered a little with the effort. Was the scientist talking to him? Peter looked around. He was alone in the field. Peter turned back towards him. The scientist again contracted with exertion, then flexed as he shouted. Yes. He pointed at Peter. Peter shook his head. He cupped his hands to his mouth and shouted back. Did you say meeting or meaning? High up on the cliff, the scientist hunched over. There was a pause in which Peter thought he could hear laughter. Peter stared at him helplessly. I need help. He shouted. I've been the victim of horrible accidents. 
None of them have been my fault. I don't know what to do. His voice crumpled and he began to sob. I'm innocent. The scientist set his brow in a glare and stiffened. The wind had shifted, blowing his voice back towards Peter. He could hear him a little more easily now. There are no innocent people. He screamed sternly. He continued, still shouting and stretching his arms out and flexing his curious barrel chest. You have a meeting! He clapped his hands heartily and the sound rang over the hillside. Yes, yes, there's a rider coming to meet you, soon. He took another deep breath. He's expecting you! The scientist turned and shuffled along the high ledge then flattened his back against the rock wall and sidled behind some rocks and disappeared. Peter stared at the place he had been with growing panic. Please! He shouted. Please come back. Who's coming to meet me? When will they be here? But the man was gone and the field was silent again. Peter strained to listen. The breeze whipped through stalks of grass. Among the roots and stems, insects made paths. Somewhere a black cockatoo cawed, and Peter noticed a rhythmic swishing. It was getting louder. Thanks for listening to The Horse and the Rider. It's written, read and produced by me, Max Laverne. If you'd like to support it, you can make a donation at ko-fi.com slash maxlaverne. And please send me a message. You can DM me on Twitter, prawn underscore meat. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a look at my substack, infinitegossip.substack.com, where you'll find more of my short stories. If you know anyone who's into finales, make sure you tell them about this podcast, because next week in part 19... It's the end of the story for Peter Quinnell Live.